Hello, and welcome to the Told You So podcast. I'm Brink. And I'm Carla. And today we're going to be talking about uh, two sort of separate but very interesting and interconnected things, uh, which is the September 11th attacks and the study of morality that might be able to give us some insight into uh, what would motivate somebody to do something like that and alternately what would motivate somebody to do something incredibly awesome or positive. And possibly what would motivate uh, people who took actions after 9-11 and what sort of drove those uh, policies and ideas, because mm-hmm. some pretty bad stuff actually ended up coming out of a really terrible event. Yeah, so, I mean, to be honest, the, uh, right now we're recording this on the morning of September 11th, and uh, both of us woke up, and ye- yesterday, I mean, I saw it sort of trailing in over the week, uh, never forget, never forget uh, stories about 9-11, which are, you know, tragic and uh, heartrending and uh, but at the same time what's left out is the as Carla just mentioned the policy after effects of those horrible horrible events and also the what the things that motivated people to do this you know you yeah. can't look at any of these things in a vacuum and so many people I know, and certainly on social media, you sort of tend to just, you know, people get this one thing in their head and then that's how it is, you know? And it's like, I mean, one of the narratives is this sort of the hero narrative, mm-hmm. right? And and the, the people who went in after 9-11 and, you know, making sure that they're taken care of yeah. and the health issues and all of that. Yes, that's a powerful story, but there are heroic. other stories I mean, yeah. that... <laughs> You know, we need to tie into all of this. Um, where were you well, when just, it happened? Uh, so I actually, I was at boarding school. Um, so I was a sophomore in high school. Uh, I was... Oh, a little baby break. Uh, it, was, it, was, uh, it was a pretty um, upsetting experience for me because uh, my whole family, you know, they lived in Connecticut at the time. Uh, but my sister was in college down in the village. My dad was supposed to be doing meetings in New York that day. And my mom was down in New York meeting up with my sister. Uh, and so I wasn't able to contact them for a day. I didn't know what happened. You know, if you remember, all the phones were down. You couldn't get cell phone service in, in the city. Um, they went to the Williams Club, which is like, a, you know, one of these collegiate clubs. My dad went to Williams College, so he gets to, like, go to the club. Um <laughs> But so they went there and they hung out with a huge crowd of people. And meanwhile, I was just in Delaware, like crying and not knowing what was happening and thinking that my family, you know, might not be around. Uh, and tragically, you know, we, we did have uh, some family friends who, who, you know, some friends who lost parents. And uh, it was it was deeply upsetting and confusing. Um, Yeah, it definitely felt that way. Um, I was in San Francisco at the time, and actually we had been... I think we had gone clubbing or partying or something. I, I remember, you know, our phone started ringing at 6 in the morning-ish, right. right? And it was friends from New York who were all calling to say, turn on the television, something is happening, yeah. right? And I remember being in bed and kind of being, like, looking at the alarm clock and being like, which jerk is calling me at this time in the morning, right? right? <laughs> and so I let, it, you know, the answering machine, oh, the olden days, Right. Uh, answer a few <laughs> times, and then I was like, okay, that's weird. The phone is ringing at 6 in the morning. I should get my <clears throat> hungover butt out of bed and go find out what's going on. Yeah. And, you know, and so did, obviously, turn on the television and sort of watched it. And I would say, like, my, my immediate core reaction, um, certainly when the towers came down, was just this sense. I, I mean, I clearly remember saying this to my husband, and I was just like, America will never be the same again. Yeah. Yeah, I mean I and honestly I remember too that I was uh I was pissed and like I wanted to go like fight someone. You know what I mean? Like I, I was I was uh you know I was a teenage boy and my had probably an immature emotional response to it, but it was like Well I think I'm not even sure that's an immature response. I think it's <laughs> it's a very natural response. Like people have that sort of fight and flight yeah. and I think it was that feeling of, Oh my god, we've been attacked and I'm more then more of a fighter than a flighter, so yeah. I <laughs> <laughs> you know, so I think that's a very natural reaction. And it was a reaction yeah. we saw across America, right? Well, it was, like it was people sort of, sort of like... banding together for the first time in right. a long time. Well and I think, you know, also um I love 
fantasy literature and speculative fiction and um, sometimes these fictional worlds where morality is much clearer than it is in the real world and where there's good guys and there's bad guys and you can tell because that guy says he's the good guy and you know um, and I think that what was uh, shocking to me was it was you know obviously terrible things happened all over the world but um, and in retrospect I think we'll maybe we'll get into this there was a reason that it happened but I didn't understand that there was a reason that it happened. You know, I, I thought this was just fanatics being fanatical. And so it was like this incursion of evil into the world that was very confusing and alarming because in the context, too, of 2001, I mean, the world was on a unending upward slope towards betterness. That was the, you know, we had the miracle of the 90s and communism died and Ireland was at peace and, you know, the civil wars in Africa and Rwanda were over and the it was like this march into the future of glory and wonder for the whole world. And, and, and then I like think, this, you know, this plane out of the Stone Age right? came and wrecked it. And, you know, that was, anyway, sorry, I, I don't mean to talk over you, but it was, uh, it was, it was very, it was like a, I was living in an intellectual space at my at the board at St. Andrews. It's a great school, very like intellectually rigorous and um, also very progressive to the point that like uh, <laughs> I got not in trouble, but I was advised that I should not put up an American flag out my window uh, afterwards because oh, wow. that was like jingoistic. Oh, that's so um. interesting because I, I do recall that, you know, in California, certainly in Silicon Valley is not the sort of place where you would see. American flags up or people wearing pins. But I do recall that a lot of my uh, lawyer, female friends, progressive, some lesbian, some, you know, like just the whole gamut of the spectrum yeah. who were like, booyah, and they started wearing American flag pins. And like, just right. this like really surprising to me, having come from a very nationalistic country, you know, where good things I have learned over the years and you know I'm open to being convinced otherwise but I'm pretty sure I'm right like nothing good usually flows from absurd nationalism and I definitely had that sense Um, and I think it was a exploitable political moment you know I think that a lot of things you know people were like oh we we've been waiting for this uh, this moment so well it's a lot like I mean for the for the national security and defense people it was just like climate changes for Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez or, or these people that want the Green New Deal, where it's like, wait a minute, you've been suggesting that we implement these policies every year for the past 30 years. <laughs> now it's because of this? Right. Uh, okay. <laughs> right. And, and, and a lot of people didn't know that at the yeah. time, right? They didn't what, know that what the CIA it, wanted uh, to spy on everybody harder and faster and better than right. ever. They you know, didn't was know. it um, uh, Emmanuel Ra, what's his name? The guy who said, never let a crisis go to waste. Oh, Rahm Emanuel. Uh, yeah, there we go. Sorry. It's early in the morning, so I will transpose <laughs> all first letters of words. <laughs> Emmanuel Rahm sounds like a R&B singer. It does, rather. We should get uh, deep down and groove it, Emmanuel baby. Emmanuel Rahm, <laughs> singing your favorite sexy favorites. Um, <laughs> um, you know, so the good crisis sort of theory is something that... You know, we know statists sort of keep in their back pocket. They have their, you know, 300-page documents where they're like, oh, we really want to do this weird and evil thing, and we just (laughs) need to wait till something weird and evil happens, and then, ha-ha, we will introduce this this policy. And we know from 9-11, I mean, some of the things that came out of that was the Patriot Act. Terrible, terrible legislation. And and obviously... uh, (laughs) Well, the whole, not just the Patriot Act, but Let's the whole... Let's talk about the wars. Right, exactly. That was what I was going to say. But the whole outgrowth of the institution around the Patriot Act, like the Joint Terrorism Task Forces, these uh, fusion centers that are all over the country where it's like information sharing centers where they basically share rumors about people and then prosecute them. <laughs> um, like, it, it's it's really bad. And, and not only that, but they're bumbling and incompetent most of the time. And I feel like I'm going to get myself in trouble with this, but... Uh, I mean, like, the fruit of 9-11 has been that the FBI has learned how to identify mentally ill, poor young men and turn them into terrorists and sting investigations and then parade them around as though they've saved everybody's lives. When all they did was completely, completely fail to protect the country, which is their job, 
I mean, the, it, it's truly amazing that uh, those attacks happened. The entire U.S. Uh, defense and intelligence intelligence establishment, you know, it, it was on their watch. And that the reaction was, we need to give these people unlimited power. I know. It's <laughs> it's one of those things that is just 100% shocking to me about how government works is the more they fail, the more they are rewarded. And I want right. to like stop and just like remind people. I mean, think about any other system that works that way, right? So capitalism works the reverse of that. It's basically like <laughs> if you do a good job, you get rewarded, and that's your reward. And with government, it's like the worst job you do, the more resources we will allocate to you to do a supposedly better job, but in reality, it's just a cycle of, because the incentives are wrong. Right. And like with 9-11, as you say, I mean, all these people got more power. They literally Bush promoted. Right. The, the people who let this happen. So right. so what is that and, and feedback like, I mean, loop, yeah, right? I don't, I, don't wanna, I don't want it to come off as though it's like, you know, speaking out of both sides of my mouth in terms of like, why didn't the NSA protect me? And also, I don't want the NSA to protect, you know what I mean? I'm not saying that. But what I'm saying is that uh, it's not for lack of tools that they didn't uh, bring this attack to the attention of people. And going back through the paperwork and everything, it seems like it was on their radar. Oh, uh, uh, you know, I mean, and I don't want this to be like a 9-11 yeah, conspiracy because, right. you know, whether it is or isn't, uh, you know, you can go make up your own mind about that. But what we do know is, and what history teaches us, is that for every story and every hero narrative that we know, let's take um, Pearl Harbor as an example, if you actually go study the history behind that, you will know and understand, and it is factually correct, that there was prior knowledge that sometimes these things are allowed to happen so that they create the crisis mentality right. so that there the is an opportunity yeah. to go do you know things across the world yeah. and no i don't think that that's what happened in this case i do think i mean it's worth saying i think that there's there's a difference between there's the conspiracy theory or whatever which would be like george bush and dick cheney with halliburton wanted the oil so they blew up the towers you know that's the standard conspiracy theory. I think that there is room to say, I don't know if the government's official story about every aspect of this was 100% true. I feel like that's a more valid objection than having like a lizard people <laughs> explanation. But I, I mean, there, I will say this, that, you know, if we're just going to dip our little toes in this, um, one that I found highly suspicious was just that we could say this was the biggest crime that had been committed on American soil, at least in a really, really, really long time. Yeah. And so you would expect, I don't know, like good forensic science, maybe people going, uh, this is a crime scene, we should analyze these things and all of that. Right, so that's... the fact that George Bush's brother just shipped all the steel, molten <laughs> steel out of Manhattan on a boat within you know, a week, seemed weird yeah. to me like that was definitely one where it just jumped out at me i'm not sure no, what happened so things, i have my theories i'm yeah. not going to share it with anyone because you know i want you to continue to listen to the show <laughs> well and with so many things i always it's like uh what's the saying like it's it's often a mistake to uh no that would use the word mistake twice in the same idiom it's often an error to mistake uh stupidity for maliciousness yeah and, and, and i think that that's the other element is that there's just so much stupidity at all levels of society. Well, there is, <laughs> but can't. the thing is, once again, is I think we should look at things through an incentive lens, right? Yeah. So, so fine, I understand that institutions are big, they're stupid, there are all of these things, but the question becomes, why are we rewarding the people who fail right, who make the most to do mistakes. whatever their job is? Now, I don't agree with a lot of what the government's job is, right? Like, I think it's too big. It's doing too much. I think it's a really bad sign when we're spying on our own citizens, where people are, in fact, manufacturing terrorists. Yeah. Folks, just know one thing. If some dude is trying to hand you a truck filled with fertilizer, oh, just oh, say oh, no. And it's not just that. I mean, this is... And I, I feel like we're kind of straying afield here, but it's worth this is worth talking about because it's worth like reading the details. Next time you read a story about the FBI foiling a terror plot, read the details, and you will see it'll be some guy with a foreign name 
who's poor as hell, who's probably like schizophrenic or has some other mental illness that makes them paranoid. And then you'll read the FBI furnished him with weapons, $10,000, a vehicle, blah, blah, blah. You know, it, it's like they create these people. I mean, the, was it the first? So, you know, the uh, just to go back in history. So there was a bombing of the World Trade Centers, right? That happened in the late 80s, early 90s, yeah. 90s, right? It was I think the it guy, was under Clinton, the guy drove, right? yeah, he drove a truck under uh, into the, the parking area. Yeah, and, blew and it up. so if, if memory serves me, and actually I didn't know we were doing a show on this, so I'm not up on all yeah, yeah, my yeah. stuff, but. Um, but I can talk about the morality of it. Oh yeah. Well, no, <laughs> but, I know. We, but, like I said, but, you we, know, we kind when of... they did the when when that happened, I feel like the backstory there was also really suspicious with that first bombing. Wasn't there also an issue like of they were working with the guy and, they, yes. and he was a confidential informant? Yes. And it's quite possible that our own intelligence agencies actually fomented that vibe so that that first bombing happened. I think all I of these things surprised. are factually provable. Yeah. So you know, if well, I've got that's... it wrong, let us know in the comments. It's but. just funny because it's like <laughs> the 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 it doesn't seem like they ever actually interdict a terrorist attack. I mean, that's the thing that I'm like when you read the details of these stories, the the all of the power and all of the tools that have been given to these people, they just use them to create new criminals. And it's just like with drug policy, it's way easier to arrest pot smokers than to do real police work. Um, and it's way easier to, you know, lure some uh, mentally damaged 20-something down the primrose path of jihad than it is to actually find terrorists. Well, um, and, and I think it's because the state apparatus has gotten too big, right? Like, so all these agencies and all these groups need to justify their existence and justify their right. budgets and all of that. I mean, we see it down onto the macro level of a department, a police department, right? Yeah. Where they're like, we must keep growing. We must use more right. resources. We yeah, must, they, they we have must, like a startup must. mentality. It's like, it's, like, it's like everybody thinks that they're a business and they're like, our quarterly revenue isn't going up. We need to boost earnings. Well, I mean, and, and, and to some extent, that is what quotas gave us, right? Yeah. Because that's where you get this mashup when we're trying to introduce free market principles like incentives mm -hmm. to something where it doesn't really fit, right? So right. so with the policing, what we ended up doing is we, we created an incentive for them to actually over-criminalize and go penalize and, and catch people. Because their source of funding is dependent on... Yeah, yeah. you know, so... All right. Oh, well, this is this is this is far off of the original topic, but it's interesting, and I mean, I think that that's with with the whole September 11 attacks. I, I think that the the reason that it's so indelibly seared in our consciousness. I mean, it's a couple of reasons. Number one, obviously, it was a horrible loss of life um, and loss of you know human human uh, wealth in terms of the people that that were murdered. Um, number two, it was as I said earlier. I think that. Uh, my generation, anyway, we had there. There weren't any real global problems, you know. Like we had Bosnia and Herzegovina when I was like fifth grade or something. Uh, you know, there was the Rwandan genocide. There were there were pockets of there's issues in the world, uh, but we all seemed pretty blissfully isolated. I mean, I, I remember. Was the World Trade Organization, was that Seattle World Trade Organization protest, was that before or after September 11th? I, I want to look think, that up. I mean, it was all around the sort of same time as that. I mean, I think the other thing is that we have this shared experience, right? So that's something that is is pretty interesting, right? So if you talk to people about 9-11, it's sort of the same thing that we have with climate change and climate because, you yeah. know, it's something that everyone experientially feels like they have an opinion on. Right. And with 9-11, everyone has their 9-11 story. I was blah de blah This happened to me. This is how I felt, right? Yeah. So it's a sort of shared experience. So you wanted to add Okay, yeah, yeah. So those... And maybe this is like bigger in my mind because I listen to a lot of punk music and there's a great song called Seattle Was a Riot. Um, but it's uh, that happened in 1999. And the reason that I mention it is that I remember thinking, oh, my God, what an amazing, beautiful, prosperous world we live in where like the biggest protests are about. We want global trade to work different. Like, wow, what an elevated level of society we're operating at here. You know what I mean? Like, right. 
boy, that other people are like, we want to vote. Or like, you know, like, we want the government to stop stealing everything we own. And we're like, we need different tariff policy when it comes to the Pacific Zone. I'm going to put on the black mask and smash up Seattle because of it. Like, really. I mean, think about the level of, of material prosperity and success that that indicates. Like, and uh, the material prosperity and success that was created by a free market system, right. not by, you know, the, the government taking your money and trying to make you be a better person. Yeah. No, and it, it is just interesting to think about, I mean, uh, uh, juxtaposing that with like the modern Antifa stuff and the way that people act now as though things now are like they were in the 19th, like early 19th century. <laughs> and in the 90s, it's like everybody knew that the world was getting better, but now we've all decided that the world is getting worse. And I do, I do think that September 11th was like the pivot that made people start being pessimistic about the world again. Because it was like, again, it was this emergency. Well, I mean, sure. But, I mean, we could also say that that actually was a catalyst for the world getting yeah. worse. I mean, certainly if you live in the Middle East and, you know, you're just some goat farmer and half your family got murdered by a drone right. because... Well, those didn't exist then. You know, There it's, were no drones yet. Um, <laughs> come on, um, <laughs> I know, I know. So, 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 um, so you know, so, so the thing is, right, so these things don't happen in a vacuum. Why 9-11 happened didn't happen in a vacuum. But then the response, of course, right. is like it's going to have this effect, right, that washes over. So if we look at wars, wars are bad. We all know that. I mean, I feel like we all know it, but apparently, I mean, there, there are vast groups of people who are kind of like, as long as I'm the one winning the war, it's all good. I yeah. personally... Don't subscribe to that. So now, like, in Europe and all these places, we have this refugee crisis. I mean, yeah. people are literally going, you know, why, you know, everyone's butthurt. Everyone's like, oh, I don't want th this enclave or I don't want this religion coming right. here or screw the Muslims or screw the Christians or screw the, you know, let's, Whoever you know. It is, yeah. And it's like, okay, but let's follow and pull these threads. Like, this led to this, led to this, led to this, led to that, right? And so all the challenges we're seeing in Europe right now, and I look at those refugees, you know, Ai Weiwei, he's a Chinese... Um, oh, the artist, yeah. ...dissident artist. He did a really cool documentary. Uh, it's very visual. It's a good, like... You know, a Sunday afternoon, slightly stoned, do I want to watch something pretty but not really pay attention kind of sh yeah. movie to watch. Um, but it's I think it's called Move, and it's about, you know, all the refugees and all these people who are moving across the world now. And you watch these families, you know, and it's it's 20-something Muslim people, a dad, a mom, and a child. And, you know, instead of just looking at them like, oh, that's an other, if right. you just look at them through the lens of that's another human being, and you're like, that's a dad and a mom, and there are two kids who are literally fleeing someplace because they don't know how they may possibly get killed, or there's right. no food for them, or their electricity stopped working, or whatever. And I look at those people and I actually admire them because I'm like, I hope that if I was in that situation, my mom and dad would care about me enough to get on a fucking boat. Right and go somewhere and try and save us. And so, like, all these people who look at all of this... And, and that's they pretty just much the story of everybody from America, is at some point, somebody in your family got on a boat and said, screw this! Right? We're going to America! Yep. And, 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 I mean, I look at my forefathers, and they left Europe, got yeah. on a boat to Africa. We got to Africa. We are like, oh, this is cool. Let's trade. Then the stupid British showed up. They're like, eh, hey, we're going to take all your stuff. Let's do that. Hey, colonialism, empire, yay. Hey, that's good. Won a green card, came to America, went to Silicon Valley, looked at that, was like, oh, this is kind of cool, but uh, also I believe in human liberty and dignity right. and ended up in New Hampshire. So there we have that cycle, yeah, right? Yeah. Slightly different. And but, no, but I, I agree. I, I think it's the it's similar with the whole uh, – I had kind of like an eye-opening thing with the refugee crisis at the southern border in America – uh, in reading a little bit more about Honduras and Guatemala and these these places where, like, it's uh, we have a hard time conceiving of what it's like because we live in this amazing society, this weird society, which we can talk about more. But uh, like in Honduras, the the 
it, it's a it's a criminal state and not in the way that like libertarians call the United States government a criminal state. It, it's literally a state run by criminals uh, and not like we'll steal from you, like murdery type criminals. Yeah, and, I mean, it's definitely and, a fu- I definitely I mean, I've been to Honduras. I've been to Guatemala, both, you know, in the last 10 years. Honduras, I mean, I was surprised like our flight got canceled and we ended up having to get in a taxi and drive like six hours in a taxi to another town. And, you know, and so we were sort of flummoxed. We didn't even know what was going on. But the ho- uh, the airline put us up in a nice hotel. Yeah. So we're in this nice hotel in downtown wherever Honduras, sitting next to a glass window and I was having a martini I remember and I looked outside and this truck went by with like all these um, uniformed uh, you know sort of camo clad men with machine guns and stuff and that truck went by and they looked sort of like soldiery like right? paramilitary like, uh, dudes yeah, yeah. And then maybe, and I like took two sips of my martini, and then I looked, and then, then there was a truck, pickup truck, coming from the other side with differently clad dudes in. Ooh. And I, I looked at Louie, and I was like, I think we should move away from the window. <laughs> <laughs> Is this bulletproof? Or? Yeah. <laughs> and it was definitely that. So I definitely got that kind of vibe, and there was like, viva yeah. la revolution, yeah. kind of graffiti, and all of that, right? So no, a that- lot of times these people... This is the thing. A lot of the times, those people knocking on your gates, so yeah. to speak, metaphorically, are the ones you want to let in. Right, because they're are the ones that don't are, like the status quo in a bad place. Yeah, exactly. the, who, who are willing to take risks to make their lives better. Aren't those the people we want? Yeah. No, I know. I mean, anyway, I, th- again, this is, a, this is a whole different topic, but I, I do think that... Uh, well, so, I mean, but with, with the, the consequences of 9-11, what I was going to say earlier is that well, I think that one of the biggest consequences is uh, there's been a global deterioration of trust. Yes. Um, and it makes sense. You know, it's like we got sneak attacked by a non-state actor. And how are you supposed to even respond to that when you get a sneak attack from a non-state actor? It's like uh, I, I can't come up with an analogy, but it's like if you, if you had uh, – well, it's, it's the difference between like – IBM, this makes no sense. Okay, it's the difference between like waste management's garbage truck hits your car and you sue them and you get the repairs paid for because it's a company versus like some dude in a pickup slams into your car and then like maniacally drives away and laughs and they have no license plates and there's no identifying and you're like, what? 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 Like this isn't how this works at all. (laughs) You know? Well, although I think to the intelligence community and to the people in the know, the power, the people who are sitting ready with, you know, the Patriot Act, they they weren't that surprised by this, well, right? It so it was on so, their radar. <laughs> so, like my my analogy is like, there's nothing I hate more in life than if someone like hides somewhere and like jumps out and scares you. I mean, I <laughs> I literally, if Louis ever dies, that's how he's gonna die. He thinks it's hilarious, and <laughs> I do not, right? <laughs> So I feel like, like for most of us, it was like that sneak attack, right? Right. It was like someone jumped out from behind the door and you were like, ah! Right. right? Except to the people kind of in the know. It was right. not this 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 sneak attack. In fact, they were like, woohoo! There's chatter. Now we Something's can do going on. All yeah. this stuff, right? And let's talk about what are the things that we directly know flowed from that, right? So we, we know it's the wars. Yep. We know it's the growing of the intelligence community. The introduction we know of the uh, military. Real- Real police, uh, the what? Real ID, all the, the bi- real biometric ID identification. Stuff. Yes, um, you know, so all all of the spying, um, the NSA stuff, the Edward Snowden, right? So all it of was that the, flowed it was the beginning out of, of our drone program because they that, that was the the impetus for that was that uh, to get to regions that would be difficult to move manned soldiers to, and originally to use it for reconnaissance, and then they're like, hey. We can strap missiles on these things. And, and you know, <laughs> and not only can we strap missiles on them, but do you know that downtown Manchester and Concord here in the great state of New Hampshire now have their own drones? Yeah. So when we talk drones. about the yeah, surveillance drones, so when we talk about, like, the militarization of police, it's like, so 9-11 yeah. to the fact that Concord, New Hampshire, that's had two murders in the past 14 years, um, you know, now has right. a surveillance drone that they bring out it's and like, take photos of you when you are protesting at the state. You house. might call it like a trickle down totalitarianism, maybe. <laughs> I <laughs> love that. Let's quote that. <laughs> yeah. You heard it here first, folks. 
trickle down totalitarianism. Brought to you by the police state. <laughs> but Netflix, yeah, sponsor it, us. Yeah, right. No, but it's like, uh, I think that all that, all of those military surplus programs also came out of the Bush White House, and they were all a result of the military getting a lot more money and replacing equipment. That's okay. why, I mean, the reason Concord has a Bearcat is because the military got newer Bearcats, and they sold their older Bearcats to police departments. Yeah, I mean, it's basically if you follow the money, right? So we're, so, and we should mention this, that on September 10th, 2001, a audit came out that said that the Department of Defense had lost more than two trillion, with a T, dollars. That is an insurmountable, understandable amount of money um, that just disappeared. And so conveniently, the next day, this thing happens where it's like, oh, let's pivot and change the story. Now, a little personal detail here as well is, uh, as you know, I used to serve as the president of the Free State Project. I live in New Hampshire because of it, because of the Free State Project and moving libertarians here to, to the Granite State. Um, the Free State Project actually got hurt by 9-11 because yeah. we had announced like days before, if not the day before. And you can actually go look at the Google Trends. Like if you want to just depress yourself, don't do it, folks. But you can go look at the Google Trends and you can see we had our peak was literally the day, you know. Right before. The, yeah. Before. And from there, our Google Trend just slowly sort of like, at, you know, in the good years, those would be my years. Yeah. It sort of flattens out and then it kind of goes down a little, right? Mm. As... Um, um, you know, the story dies. And so I wonder also if, you know, th- we would have had a different narrative mm-hmm. and a different story and a different success story Wait, if this wise, hadn't though, happened. Because, all right, so I, my Free State Project story is that I, once again, at boarding school, I was a junior. I was in the library on the computers. And I was already a crazy libertarian because I read a bunch of books about being a crazy libertarian and agreed with them. And also, again, I read a lot of speculative fiction and, like, dystopia novels. And I was like, not on my watch! Um, <laughs> but, uh, yeah, I found out about the Free State Project, and I signed up for it when I was junior in high school. Oh, and, my God! And that's I com- so cute! And I completely forgot about it. Oh, wow. Uh, and then I ended up moving here for the Ron Paul campaign to be a field coordinator and I met Chris Lawless, and we were chatting, and he was like, oh, like, yeah, you're, you're on the list. <laughs> oh, oh, I didn't know that. And now I have this visual just for you listeners back home. You know, Brink's a, a big strapping guy, and Chris Lawless is a big strapping guy. So you put those two in a room together, and I'm like, oh, my God, talk about dystopian fantasy fiction. We have our own giants. <laughs> <laughs> that was – I was always a little insulted that Chris got to be Ron Paul's freaking giant. And I was like, I'm big, too. <laughs> <laughs> We should have had you both as sentries, like on both sides, right? Well, I, I jokingly, um, Brink and I, when we uh, when we were working on trying to stop the Bearcat and Concord back in 2013, I guess at this stage, um, I remember the police chief at the time, uh, Chief Duvall. When he came to give his testimony, he was, like, flanked by two officers with, like, guns. And it seemed very sentry, sort of very, like, Romanesque, uh, you know, whatever those those words are. And I had said to Brink at the time, I was like, all right, next time we do something like this, I want you and Lola so you guys come, like, flank me and just, like, come stand with your folded arms. I love that idea. carrying hatchets. (laughs) Right? (laughs) But we're not allowed to have guns. (laughs) How am I supposed to protect myself? Um, uh, but so, anyway. So, so 9-11 uh, also just in terms of like the immediate aftermath for me yeah. in Manhattan was uh, 2003 we moved to Manhattan. We lived in Chinatown. We were actually uh, on East Broadway, very close to the Manhattan Bridge. And when I got the apartment, which was kind of like slummy, but it was a good, you know, 1,200 square yeah. foot in Manhattan Man, for like $2,000. Like so we were expensive. like, score. But it was it was a little sh- shady and weird. And, you know, yeah. we were the only white people in Chinatown kind of thing. But when we moved into that apartment, the subways was still not running yep. on the Manhattan Bridge, so it was super quiet, and it was awesome, and <laughs> I had no idea because I'd never lived in that part of town. And then maybe like four months after we moved in, the subway started running again, and, like, and it was it. like, yep. all the time. Yep. So that was a bit of an adjustment. But 
what we did see in New York City was that use of that event as an excuse to start to violate the Fourth Amendment on yeah. a really alarming level, right? So searching your bag when you get right. on the subway, you could refuse, which I often did, uh, which would, one, always make you late for everything. Mm -hmm. So it had a negative impact on my life where you had to start earlier. But then I was also like, let's talk about the security theater of it, right? right. Because, uh, because you were allowed to refuse. So you'd just be like, oh, yeah, I'm not going to go through here. Sorry, sayonara. And then get up and walk away. Now, if you were an actual terrorist, right. wouldn't you just do that, too, and then walk to Broom Street and like, right. jump on there? Or, or again, you know, haven't you created a new choke point where there's a big crowd of people that would be blown up? Like, I, I don't know. There's It's an endless... I mean, I feel the, like I there are that not that many people out in the world who really want to harm and no. scare and hurt us because if there were, the world would be a much worse place. Well, I think the bigger problem is the institutionalized sort of lens of murder where we're like, oh, it's wrong for me to kill you, Brink, but, but hey, if I'm the government, uh, it's, it's all good, baby. I mean, I think that it's not even so much that there aren't that many people that are awful like i think there's probably lots and lots of awful people but like the silver lining is that a lot of them are really stupid <laughs> and <laughs> well no really i i and if i remember correctly like I, I i don't have the numbers at the tip of my tongue here but um like criminals in general are a very stupid bunch because like especially in america like it's a pretty prosperous society if you have to be a criminal either you're from a place where there's no opportunity uh and you might be smart or you're from anywhere else and you're probably pretty stupid and, like, have very low impulse control and ability to plan and execute things. So, like, the good news is that the kind of people that want to do violence are dumb and therefore unlikely to plan terrorist attacks, which is why it's just the idea of a supervillain or an Osama bin Laden who, holy crap, this guy writes essays and makes videos and produces – but he's also evil, you know. <laughs> like well, there's not that much. There, there's there's not uh, that many examples of it outside of people that are actually parts of governments, like Lenin, Stalin, Mao. Pretty easy case. But for your rando out on the street, it's very hard for you to become the leader of a terrorist organization. Right, and 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 thank God for that. But also, I mean, if you look at the numbers for uh, private murders versus uh, state-sanctioned murders. Yeah. It's, I mean, it's pretty compelling, I think, uh, wearing my anarchist hat for a second, right? And just saying that, okay, if we had, like, no world government, how would it work? And I'm not sure this comparison is entirely fair because these two things aren't equal. Mm -hmm. But, you know, if you take conservative numbers for the amount of uh, people that the state has killed over the, in the 20th century... I mean, I want to say it's uh, is it between 180 and 260 million people, and that's like being like that's a really conservative number. I think it's closer yeah. to half a billion. That sounds about right. But the private murders in that time are eight million. Yeah. So I'm like, mm, maybe I would just take uh, the mm. the you know now the question. Well, I think well, I think that the the like you can't you can't separate the one from the other because it's a continuous like it's a contiguous system. So, uh, but the thing is, we're 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 adding all these layers of government and and sort of more control and authoritarianism and totalitarianism, more like government sanctioned sort of control measures mm -hmm. and ways of killing people. But you know when which kill a lot of people. But then if you actually look at private murders, for lack of a better term, I need a better term than sure. that. They're private mostly free. like people who know each other. Free market murders. <laughs> no. <laughs> <laughs> private murders. We're sticking with that one. You know, it's mostly people who know each other. It's like someone, right. you know, it's crimes, crimes of passion. passion. Yes. Um, it's it's Louis jumping out when I'm in the shower and getting stabbed to death. What the fuck? <laughs> one of those days. <laughs> you know, it's gonna be that, babe. Right. I won't kill you. I swear. <laughs> no, and it's the same thing. That's why there aren't a lot of like serial killers. It's because most people, if you're a murderer, you're probably pretty dumb. Right. If you can't solve a situation by doing anything but kill someone, like. I want to ask you something. I don't know. Maybe you don't watch many of these but like you know I obviously obsessively watch documentaries and true crime and all of that stuff okay. and once in a while I'll run across like a serial killer guy right I think it was Bundy there was like a two part or a three part thing okay. on him and you watch it and I feel like I'm a really good judge of people and like I, I get it you yeah. know and then I watch these things and I'm like nope 
I would not have told you, like, I would not have figured out that guy's a dirtbag, murdering SOB, you know? And it's just, it's, it's weird to me because we have this sense where we're like, we know how the world is. And then you're like, oh no, that guy totally would have taken me. Oh, Ted? He's so nice though. You know? (laughs) Um, And so, uh, you know, and obviously those are outliers as well in terms of, you know, like the serial killer thing. It's something we're scared of, but the likelihood is so small that we shouldn't be scared of it. So speaking of serial killers and terrorists and other people that make terrible choices with their lives, um, this might be a good time to sort of transition into talking a little bit about the the moral foundations behind these concepts. And so I lent uh, Carla my copy of The Righteous Mind, which is one of my favorite books of all time. Um, and she she read it. And I'm very excited to hear her thoughts on it. But the, the thing I think it will inform here is that uh, the book is all about how people make moral decisions. And, uh, you know, I guess you could call uh, planning a terrorist attack an immoral decision. But people don't do things for no reason. They do things for a reason all the time. Like, that's the basic insight of psychology. There's no such thing as laziness. You're avoiding something. There's no, you know, you don't, you don't, just, uh, you don't just do things. It's always an expression of something that you want um, and some uh, expression of your morality and beliefs. So, yeah, so I, I think Jonathan Hyde's a very interesting thinker on this topic, and I'd love to hear uh, what Carl thought about it. Yeah, so first of all, I'm going to impress everyone right now by explaining um, basically the premise of the book, right? So first of all, he starts with this idea of, uh, you know, we're not a blank slate. So when you're born, you know, you are actually programmed a little bit with some innate senses of uh, what's right and wrong. And so he talks about um, your... You're not a blank slate, but you're basically a uh, first draft, right, Mm -hmm. that needs to get organized in advance of experience. And then you have experiences, and this forms the foundation of your morality. So he goes and he does uh, studies, right, and he looks at the five things that he would claim are moral uh, foundations, right? And so these are, like, beyond your intuitions and beyond your emotion. And the five are harm and care. So that's sort of like everything that's bound by like yeah. your feels. And each of these are like a spectrum. So it's right. not it's not like one of the it's not a binary one or the other. It's like there you can fall on the spectrum from I only care about harm to I only care about care. Right. Right. Yeah. Okay. So he's got harm and care. Then there's fairness and reciprocity. Then there's in group loyalty. Mm-hmm. Then there's authority and respect. And then there's purity and sanctity. So harm and care is sort of uh, your feelings, right? So fairness and reciprocity, it's not fair. Like, right. I think we all understand that one. With the in-group or loyalty, it's actually, this is very uniquely human, right? Um, and he, he Or said, social animal, anyway. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And so what was interesting when he analyzed all these things, he found that there was this huge divide between uh, people left liberal so um, and people right conservative, mm-hmm. right? And then people like Brink and I are just kind of somewhere in the middle. <laughs> so one around, of the, very confused. Yeah, because, <laughs> and, and, and that was sort of one of my criticisms of the book. So, so he started his TED Talk, which I rewatched this morning, which is why I can remember anything that we are talking about, <laughs> with this photo of David. Right. So the statue of David. And he said, you know, uh, when people look at this photo, they typically have one of two responses. They either are like, oh, that's art. That's pretty. And that would typically be a liberal response. Mm -hmm. Or you have a response where you're like, oh, my God, he's naked. I feel so ashamed. And that, he says, is a typically conservative response. And I was like, but you're wrong, Jonathan Haidt, because there are people like us in the middle who I was like, well, well I have both those responses. I right. can appreciate it as art, but I'm also like, I mean, I'm not shocked that the dude's naked, but I can understand that response because yeah. it's just part of our innate. Well, I can understand it, but I think that I think that what he would say and what the differentiation is that uh, that this is about how you feel, not about how you think you feel. So, like, what we're talking about with this is metacognition. It's thinking about the way you think. So if you look at David and think, I just reacted in such a way, but also if I think about it a bit more, I can see the merits of what, right? So this is all in the head, not the gut, um, what we're talking about. And what he's talking about, I think, is the gut. 
He's, he's talking about that moral impulse of what is your first reaction. Sure, yes. Which you can overcome. Like, that's the point. But it takes a lot of work. Like, that's what therapy but it, you is. See, but you I know? actually think that's what <laughs> makes libertarians is yeah. people who think about thinking. So that meta thinking, Typically, right? Yes. So, I mean, part of the disconnect. Except when they don't examine certain things of their own ideas. <laughs> well, sure. But, but, but like, part of the problem, I think, is with, with – uh, so when Jonathan gives this speech at the TED Talk, he actually asks the audience, or maybe, like, 500 people – in the room, let's just say for the sake of argument. Yeah. So first he asks, who here is liberal? And almost everyone puts up their hand. He, uh, he's like, who's conservative? And like six people put up their hands. Yeah. And then he actually, kudos to him, was like, and who here would say they're libertarian? And a half a dozen, no, two dozen people put up their hands. And I was like, oh, we get a <laughs> shout out, finally. But part of, I think, what happens is, is when people are... With, with the way we think about things is I not only think about how I'm thinking, but I actually go and analyze the results as well. So you can't just be like, oh, this makes me feel good on the on the fairness, justice right. matrices. So I we should do more of this without then going, you know, like helping the poor and all that stuff without going, well, are these outcomes, are we actually getting what we are morally trying to make ourselves feel good about, if right. that makes sense. Totally, yeah, yeah. Does it does the does the uh, prescription give you the right cure? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Like. Because I think that that's the huge disconnect. Like I had this idea the other day, and I don't know. We'll we'll see what you think about it. But I was like, you know, when we look at things through this left right paradigm, right? Mm -hmm. So we have we have. Um, you know, the Democrats are saying, you know, all the crappy things the Republicans do and how awful all of that is, right? Yeah. And, and the Republicans are, like, saying how all the crappy things the Democrats do and whatever. Right. And I'm over here going, yes, I agree. You're both doing crappy things. Correct. Yeah. <laughs> no, I know. How do we fix it, you know? Uh, well, I think also, like, the more that I've thought about this stuff, too, um, it's not just, like, it, it's more than just a, a two-axis Nolan chart. It's, like, a three- or four-dimensional multi-axis graph of, of how people operate. Because, like, there's conservative or liberal with your political positions. But then there's also conservative and liberal temperaments. So there's, like, personality types that are – and I don't mean, like, Myers-Briggs. I just mean, like, people's ways of being. You know what I mean? where some people are more open to new experiences, some people are more closed to new experiences. So you can end up with people that are conservative progressives, if that makes sense, where their their concerns are about purity and authority, et cetera. But the language that they use to inform those concerns comes from the progressive movement. So, for example, I think that like the whole social justice thing, to a certain extent, is an outgrowth of the conservative temperament. Um, which is there's lots of people with conservative temperament and it gives you a really good way to be judgy in the same way that you could if you were like, you know, uh, a, a Christian person meeting a pagan in the 70s when monolithically the whole world is Christian and you're allowed to say, well, you need to get right with God or you're going to burn in hell and feel really good about it, you know? Um, so it's, it's interesting. I think that there's a lot of... Uh, we want to put people into boxes, but people are very complicated and they have this matrix of values that they care about. And then they, they have, and that's like this inchoate sense of feelings that they have. And then they inform those feelings with the words from all these ideologies. And a bunch of them are more readily available than others. Like progressivism is highly available right now. I think that probably in different parts of America, uh, red meat conservatism of the, you know, uh, God, guns, and defense kind of thing, that's probably readily available for lots of people. Um, but really, to, to go back to the, the earlier thing, I think that uh, the act of removing yourself from your own perception, trying to step outside it and observe yourself, it's really hard. Like, that's what it's the, it's like the, that was in, you know, you, you, that it was in religious traditions that you did that if you were like a monk. You know, if you're a Zen monk, you examine your own thoughts. You, If you're a Christian monk from the 1200s, you meditate and examine, you know. It's this it's this very heady academic exercise well, 
well, that I, I think, think most is... people don't engage in. Sure, but I... Or, and I, are taught I, not to engage in. I, I think we may be taught not to engage in it, and also... Um, it is an exercise worth pursuing for yourself. I read, I may have talked about this on another show, but you know, I read a book about thinking and then I started thinking a lot about my thoughts yep. <laughs> and that was like, Oh uh, my God, what are all these voices in my head? And I mean, it was a year long journey, but you know, I did a lot of that sort of meta work. And, um, and so I'm now very aware of my thoughts and why I'm doing things and whatever. And yeah. I think that, you know, we could be healing the world in all these radically cool new ways. Mm. And I think part of it is genuinely the government is too big. We don't really know what we're doing. All humans are right. sort of unique little beings. And it's like, oh, my God, we have so many better ways to think about things and and as we gain all this different knowledge why don't we use it to to free ourselves and to make ourselves wholer better people than yeah. to be like hey, hey we figured it out how can we enslave more people well, to mean, do I, our bidding i think that the the biggest challenge that we face as humans and it's kind of like an evolutionary thing or not evolutionary that's not the right word but it's like we need to make ourselves evolve intellectually and the that work that you're just talking about, I think is a core part of it because we have the problem of, you know, our hardware is made for the jungle, but our software keeps updating for the modern society. And that's a nice way to describe it. I like that. Yeah. Well, and we have to keep like the hardware is getting old. Shut up. Like, can, can it, well, no, I, I me too, man. I, I just turned 35. Uh, but no, but like it's, we have all these new, environments that we're in with way more humans, way more independent thinking beings than there ever were before. I mean, the, just the population density, even of Manchester, you couldn't meet this many people in your entire life a hundred years ago. Um, and now they're all my neighbors, you know, and I have to live in a culture and a society with all of them and get along with everybody and be under the same rules. Like it's very different. It's, it's changed a lot and it's changing more and more all the time. Um, and I, I forget if I mentioned this, so I'm just going to mention it again. Look at me working on circling back. So when we talk <laughs> about those five moral matrices yeah. or five moral foundations, yeah. foundations, um, the, the first two, the care and the care and harm. Yeah, harm and fairness are the only ones that actually uh, liberals care about. Mm -hmm. And so they don't care about these other three. So I guess Jonathan's like uh, like main point was like, hey, guys, like if we want to actually figure out how to get along or to actually, you know, solve some of these these intractable problems where we have the left and the right and they're pitted against each other and only because then they get to exploit us, they being the state, <laughs> right. just, you know, and um, and that most people on, on the left, meaning so these are not things that are being taught in schools is right. another way to look at it, is people aren't actually being taught um, in-group loyalty, authority and respect and purity mm -hmm. and sanctity. So that was his point in the book. But then I was like, or are they? Because... You know, uh, well, that's where it comes. Like, I think, like, in group loyalty to me is pure social justice warriorness, mm. and and um, mm, they would say that it's radical outgroup acceptance, and the only real outgroup is those who don't participate in that radical acceptance, but that's which makes just no freaking sense. Crazy. I know. <laughs> Excuse my French. <laughs> I mean, it just doesn't, you know, make sense because it's like, okay, so with the with the in group. It's like you have to celebrate diversity, but right. it's like, but then you have to celebrate the diversity of the guns and God and red meat, whatever the do, you know, yeah, your yeah. example was, right? And then for authority, they're saying, well, you must question authority. And I'm like, Unless yes, you us. should question authority, except if it's yeah. us. And it's like, but you are the state. But that's like, stage. but that's the, so that's the complicated thing too, is that I, I think that like the, um, the conservative values of, like authority, loyalty, and purity, it's easy to poo-poo that stuff and be like, huh, oh, superstitious Stone Age stuff, blah, 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 we're so evolved. But those things do matter. Like, you, you do need to have, like, to be a successful human, you need to have an appropriate respect for earned authority. And you need to be able to recognize when someone has earned authority. Like, I was just, I was reading this book called The Death of Expertise, and it was all about, um, you know, basically the cultural... Uh, sloughing off of experts and the idea that everyone's an expert. We've got Google. And it's like, no, 
you're all idiots. Experts work for thousands and thousands and thousands of hours to become experts. It doesn't mean that they're infallible, but like – you should defer to expertise when it's appropriate. Yes. And you and, should and, defer to authority and, when it's appropriate. Right. And and maybe part of a conversation would be, you know, when is that appropriate, right? right? Because authority for me, and, and you use the word earned, which I think is like the legit way to look at it, right? Yeah. So I'm like, I will not respect someone just because it's expected of me. Right. I mean, I, I I have good manners. <laughs> look at my shiny badge. You have to yeah, respect me. Yeah, <laughs> you know, I mean, I have I have a good manners, so I will yeah. I will you know treat you with some semblance of respect, yeah. but probably not deference and, for yeah, sure. Yeah, civility not, for know? sure, but yeah, not, yeah, you know. And I'm just like, while well, I figure out what that situation is, yeah. but the thing is also, you know, these these foundations are what create. The, the institutions and and sort of, you know, we're back to Western enlightenment and like how miraculous, for lack of a better term, it is that we have all these people in the world, billions and billions of people, and we are genuinely like figuring out how to make life better for everyone. Yeah. that That's what I want to do. Right. So when I look at it as life better for everyone, um, Maybe I'm coming from a different place to 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 you know red-blooded American who yeah. who just sees it as well. We must protect America, which yeah. is why well, we got to go and, bomb you know the Middle East. I, and th that's what a lot of the critiques of sort of mainstream politicians, where people are talking about why Trump is so successful, have been just that that um, are like. And I feel the same way. I think that like human liberation for all human beings on Earth is really important. Um, but that's strange. That's not normal. <laughs> and I think that, no, really, I, I think that by and large, like most people, you can't, like asking them to have a universal consciousness is too much to ask. You know what I mean? They, like it, it's, it's just, it's just too big an ask for them. But that, to me, that's like the hive mind part, right? Where it's just kind of like, don't we want to. I mean, I, I uh, not harm people. Like it's it's right, but like so you can, you can only to me. no, like, but you can I, only care about that. I mean, like how can you care about someone that that for all intents and purposes doesn't exist? You know, like if you if you live in uh, hell, if you live in Berlin, in New Hampshire, and you hear a story about something on the other side of the world, and you're living your life, I mean. It, it makes a lot more sense to not even see the, the bodies on the television as human because you're just trying to live your life with your community. Like that's the, that's when I talk about our hardware and our software, like that's the limitations of our hardware is that we're pack animals that are only built for so many people to be in relation with. And it's not obviously like we've been able to, to transcend that and overcome it. But again, I think that it's a big ask for your average human being because, as I always like to say, the Bob Dobbs' secret of power from the Church of the Subgenius is, you know how dumb the average guy is? Well, half are even dumber than that. So <laughs> <laughs> I feel like that's the note to end on. <laughs> half the people are dumber than the dumb people, folks. I always, that amuses me every time I think about it or hear it. But, um, no, but so, like, and it doesn't mean that uh, the goals that we like aren't attainable. It doesn't mean that universal human liberation isn't attainable. Um, it just means that you can't expect other people to hold those values. And you have to appeal to them with but the values I'm, that appeal to that. Sure, but then I'm back to that thing of if we could only teach people to just take care of you and yours, right? Yeah. So if if we start to get to that thing, which I kind of feel is how I was raised, right? Like I read a lot right. and I traveled a lot. So I have a really good sense of the world. But then I also have that sense of, um, well, if I take care of me and mine, then, you know, that's solving the world's problems. So it's yeah. almost and like that, if like we the... take these two sort of concepts, like you should care about everyone, but you should only fix you. Right. <laughs> yeah, no, and it was the, I think the same for me. It's, it's treat everybody, every human being deserves dignity and respect and to be treated, you know, nicely and civilly and, uh, 
and that it's your ultimate responsibility as a person on this earth to take care of yourself and be independent and, then, and like that's and be independent and and care for the people that you care about and then you know, you know like the one thing I, I have a lot of progressive friends and I feel like they don't always understand this so I hope people hung until this moment is for me, the, the core of what I believe is I think it's wrong to steal. Mm -hmm. And so I think it's wrong to take my money to go spend it on things that you think is a good idea that I don't think is a good idea, right? right? And so I think a lot of people lose sight of that particular point when they hear our ideas. Like, it's a core thing that we have to keep re-saying and reintroducing and reaffirming and all of that is we also want, like we are not uncompassionate human beings. We right. genuinely care. We care more than probably all of you because we have actually gone and looked at the results right. of big government and have come to the conclusion that you will not get the outcomes right. you want when you start with a moral philosophy of I'm going to steal your shit and to also, try and make right. the world better. Yeah, we, we care about people, but we also care about the people who would be robbed. <laughs> you know, I, and that's the that's the tension. That's the how to, you know, uh, it's a narrow path. That we walk. We here. walk a narrow path, and we are narrowly walking it to the one-hour mark. So yeah, let's wrap it up. <laughs> All right. Well, thank you guys so much for listening today. Uh, I hope that this was interesting and informative. I hope that uh, we don't end up on a watch list because we said conspiracy. You know, whatever. We'll figure it out. <laughs> Honey, I am on so many watch lists. <laughs> I know it's too late I, for me. I don't care. Anyway, well, really, thanks again for listening, and uh, have a wonderful week. Peace out, guys. Bye.